And I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, as the children are dismissed. Romans 8. Now let me encourage you, when I say turn your Bibles, it would be great in the new year if you brought your Bible to church this year. Uh, I know many of you do that, you're in the practice of doing that. I know we provide Bibles uh, in the pew, and or the... The chairs in front of you, we've got Romans journals over there. We don't want any excuses. We'd love for you to have your Bible. I know there are all kinds of different learners in the room. Some of you learn by hearing, and uh, you're the exceptional ones among us. Uh, that's the only way, you know, you, it's the only thing you need to, to do is to hear someone say something. Uh, but we can also learn by touching things, touching things. Our Bibles, our phones, well, okay, if you use a phone, just, you know, make sure you turn off all the notices and all that kind of stuff while you're listening and seeing God's Word, and we can also look by, or learn by seeing it. So all these things argue for you having your Bible in some form or another, because we like to go verse by verse, passage by passage, through the Bible. You know, if you got Christmas money, New Year's money, buy a Bible, and uh, bring it to church, and we'd love to... Uh, to walk through Romans with you. We're in the last part of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And uh, as we're going to look today at Romans 8, 31 through 39, uh, I'd encourage you to uh, follow along. There is a handout, uh, if that can be helpful to you in the bulletin. Um, and uh, hopefully that's a blessing to you as well. As we start, I want to ask you a very important question. So I've kind of stalled so you can get to Romans 8. You there? Okay. Very important question. Have you ever felt that God had abandoned or neglected you before? Truthfully, honestly, in your heart, had you ever felt that God had abandoned or neglected you? I'm not arguing what your theology says, I'm I'm saying your life experience. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever said something like this to God? God, if you love me, why are you letting this happen to me? Well, what do we do in moments like that, dark moments like that, where we're questioning, does God love me? Has he abandoned or neglected me? Don Cormack offers a powerful account of believers who experience great darkness in their lives. Uh, He wrote a book called Killing Fields, Living Fields, An Unfinished Portrait of the Cambodian Church. Cormac tells the story in the book of a handful of Christians who were executed by the communist rule of the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. One story uh, grabbed my attention. It was the story of a man, a Cambodian man by the name of Hain, who lived in Cambodia with his family. Hain and his family were Christians. And on one night in 1975, they were taken captive by soldiers who had semi-automatic guns. Hain and his family committed no crimes. They were arrested simply because they loved Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. The soldiers tied up the whole family and let them suffer through the entire evening. Throughout the night, Hain and his family prayed and cried and sang hymns to one another to encourage each other. 
and at dawn they knew what was coming. As morning break, a soldier came to them and gave them shovels and made them dig one big grave. Once the grave had been dug, Hain asked for a little bit of time to pray with his family and so joined together on their knees, hand in hand at the graveside, they prayed. After this prayer, Hain urged the soldiers to repent and trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. And I want to read to you a portion of what Cormac describes regarding the account. He says, in a panic, one of Hain's youngest sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding brush, and disappeared. Hain jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers cheering around the trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Hain began calling for his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. Hain called out, What comparison, my son, stealing a few more days in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but very soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. Cormac closes, he says, after a few tense minutes, the brush parted and the lad weeping walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now we're ready to go, Hain told the Kamar Rouge. As we read an account like this, we might wonder what sustained them. What was the key? Or how can we make it through our own dark moments and trials in this life? Well, in this passage, Romans 8, 31-39, we'll consider something that will help us in these dark moments and will sustain us. Romans 8, 31 through 39 is a passage many of you have been looking forward to. Sorry to delay over a month over Christmas. Just wanted you to anticipate. We love Romans 8, 31 through 39 in our uh, moments of joy. It's precious to us, but it is critical for us in our dark moments as well. And so I want to encourage you uh, with this passage. Now, Paul's words in Romans 8, 31 through 39, I think, are a combination of prose and poetry, just normal writing and poetry. There are poetic parts throughout the section. Not all of it is poetry, I don't think, but there are poetic parts. Uh, I think that some of this may have been a hymn or a song that Paul composed as a way to wrap up this magnificent chapter. Now, the way he arranges this conclusion is very simple. There's an opening question. You can look in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And after asking that question, which is intended to make us pause, he offers elaboration. 
Okay, so question, what should we say these things? And then he elaborates on what a proper response should be to the things he's been writing. And so that's how I want to work through the passage with you. I've got two points. If you have a handout, you've got it. You've got, number one, the initial question. Two, specific elaborations. First, the initial question, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? This question starts with what then or what shall we say then? And this is a common way for Paul to write in Romans. My count yesterday, I found ten of them. Ten times in the book of Romans, Paul will say what then or what shall we say then? It's a way for him to to call the readers, Romans and, and us, to slow down and stop and deliberate about what he's been saying. Think about what I've been saying. To this simple question in verse 31, Paul adds the subject, and the subject uh, that calls for a response, he calls these things. See that in your Bible? What shall we say to these things? And uh, that, uh, unfortunately for us, is a bit difficult because it's, it's a bit mysterious. Well, what do you mean by these things? And the commentators, boy, they could, you know, you could read pages and you could spend hours trying to figure out what these things are. You could circle these things for some commentators, draw an arrow back to the whole book of Romans. That's what these things are. What shall we say to all these things? Others would say not the whole book of Romans, maybe just Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter. I think it's most likely, however, to be some verses just immediately preceding this. I know it's been some time for us since we've heard that preached. It's been over a month now. So let me just remind you of a few of the things that could be these things. In verse 15, Paul says that we have not been given a spirit of fear under bondage, but that we've been given the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father. So he could have something like that in mind. In light of the fact that we have been adopted by God so that we've got a close relationship with him and can cry out, Abba, Father, what should we say? How should we respond? Verse 18, Paul states that the glory that will be revealed in us is so much better than present suffering that they should not even be compared. So because we're going to get this incomparable future glory, what should we say? How should we respond? Or verse 28, Paul says, All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. If Since all things work together for the good of those who have been called according to God's purpose, how should we respond? What should we say? Or most directly, most immediately before this, in verses 29 and 30, Paul exclaims, that those who have been foreknown by God are also predestined, called, justified, and glorified. These things might refer back, you might just put a circle around it and refer back to verses 28 and 29, could refer back to, you know, in light of the unbreakable chain of salvation blessings that God bestows upon his people, how should we respond? Well, since this is true, how should we respond? What should we say? And, and so Paul in the rest of the chapter says, well, let me elaborate for you. Like Paul's like, sit back and listen. 
Paul expounds on what a proper response looks like for the rest of the chapter. So we move on to number two in my notes, specific elaborations. And I want you to see the way Paul organizes it. This is a hopefully one of the best little nuggets I'll give you all morning. Okay, so you, you're still awake? Okay, so if you look in most English Bibles for the word who, from this point on, you will see how Paul arranges his argument. Paul's got a response in his mind he wants believers to have. It's not disorderly. It's not just, let me just throw all these random things out there about what you should do because you're going to be glorified. He's got a deliberate and orderly response, and it's good to see how he organizes it. So uh, he organizes the response around the question, who? So if you look closely in your Bible, you'll see he asks questions four times throughout the rest of the passage. Look at the middle of verse 31. Middle of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at the beginning of verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Look at the beginning of verse 34. Who is to condemn? Look at the beginning of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. I might encourage you to circle the who's in the passage. Simply stated, Paul's asking four things here. Who can oppose us? Who can charge us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us? Now one other little observation while I've got your attention is to also point out he not only asks these questions, he gives a response or an answer. Asking the questions isn't enough for Paul. He asks these questions so that he can give us an affirmation. So after each question, there's an answer to the question. Okay, so that's why if you got my notes, what we do from this point on are four Q&As. Okay, that really build off of what is our response? What should we say to these things? Four Q&As. The first question and answer is in verses 31, in the middle of the verse, in verse 32. The the question is verse 31 in the middle. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The first question can literally be translated, who against us? The verb is must be supplied in most English translations, uh, what Paul is most concerned about here at the beginning, I think, is the word against. And the word against is not only his concern here, but in the next two questions. They both, the next two questions I, I've already identified for you that we'll look at in further detail have the same word against. It's kata in the original. You'll see it three times. So it's not only who is against us, it's who can bring accusations against us and who can bring judgment against us. And we said that we look at the first one, it's who is against us. Paul's simply saying, uh, no one can oppose us if God is for us. Who's against us? No one can oppose us. Now, I, I would point out just two things about verse 31. Um, First, the little phrase, God is for us, if God is for us, I think is important. It implies that some people God's not for. And uh, according to the book of Romans, and 
our reading of it to this point. I, I think God being for one is roughly equivalent with people believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. People believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way God is for us in the sense is if we believe in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. But one thing I want to point out, and I think this is very important, is when Paul asks, who is against us? He does not mean that no one will ever oppose us. Or the opening story I read about the people in Cambodia makes no sense. He's not saying no one will ever oppose you. You see, Paul himself could talk from his own experience about intense and varied opposition. Matter of fact, he, he uh, arranges the entire book of 2 Corinthians around four large passages of, of suffering, where he just goes through these lists of the ways he suffered. See, Paul's faced many opponents, and and further, in this passage, this very passage itself, as we keep reading, I, mean, I haven't read it all, but as we keep reading, uh, we will learn that Paul will talk about afflictions and um, persecutions and uh, different things that believers face as well, dangers. Paul's point with this simple question, who is against this, is not that we won't have opponents, but this is how I take it. But his point is to totally minimize these opponents when they're compared with God. There are different ways to explain it, but this is my favorite way to explain it. He just wants to totally minimize all the opponents. His point is that even if the whole world population would join against me in battle, they'll come to battle me. They, they wouldn't stand a chance. If God is for me, then who do they think that they are fighting us, right? <laughs> I can include myself in there. Fighting God. No one will be able to successfully oppose those for whom God is for. But looking at his answer, his answer comes in verse 32. So you got that question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And there's an implied answer there, but he answers it directly in verse 32. Look there. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this comes in the form of a question, but it functions as an answer to Paul's first question. Paul reasons that since God gave his best for us when he gave us his only begotten son to die on a cross, why would we question whether he'll come through for us in other areas? And he calls it here simply the all things. Why couldn't we trust him to give us the all things if he's already given us something greater, Jesus? Now, when he says all things, I think Paul, my, pers- my opinion here is that Paul likely has in mind a future day when God will hand all things over to Jesus. I just did a little study, don't have time to look at it with you this morning, a little study of the word all things, and I found it in some passages where uh, we learn that all things will be made in subjection to Jesus. I think Paul understands that believers one day will share in the lordship of Jesus over all things. So, instead of opponents 
successfully being against us in the future will rule and reign with Jesus over all things in the future. That's the first Q&A, question and answer. Who can be against us? Answer, God will certainly take care of all things for us. That leads to a second Q&A. Second question is in verse 33. Look there. Who shall bring any charge against us? Okay, so the first question is who will oppose us? Second question, who will charge us? And with this question, Paul wants to consider whether anyone will be able to accuse us or, I, to wouldn'tly translate it, translate it this way, bring legal charges against us. Who will bring legal charges against us in future judgment? And uh, here we see Paul's language is poetic. Again, he actually uses two words in this little question that both start with E, epsilon. Okay, and he's using poetry. The, the, the word for uh, bring charges against starts with an E, and so does the word elect. Ekleo, eklekton. More important, however, it is, I, I think, to see in this passage, in this question, the point is we are God's elect ones. No one will successively be able to bring accusations against us in the future because it is God who not only elects us, the text continues in the answer, it's God who will justify us or who justifies us. I think the way the argument goes is something like this. Instead of someone pronouncing charges against us in the future judgment, God pronounces us righteous. I want you to take note of the fact that in this verse, we're in verse 33, the answer involves the first member of the Godhead. Right? No one messes with God's elect because he justifies That's the second Q&A. Let's go to the third. Third Q&A. The question starts in verse 34. Who is to condemn? So Paul's not only concerned with who can oppose or accuse us, he asks who can condemn us. And we should probably just know how to answer this question pretty easily at this point. I mean, if no one can even accuse us, who's going to stand to be able to condemn us? In judgment. One thing I'll point out here is that the word for condemn, or the noun form, condemnation, is the exact opposite of justification. I think Greek readers would understand that and know that. You got one side justification, its opposite is condemnation. So to be seen as one who deserves punishment or condemnation is the opposite of being released from punishment. But the question comes, who is there to condemn us? In a similar way to his last question, then Paul's formal answer involves a member of the Godhead, but this time it's Jesus. See how he's doing these question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. So the answer comes, verse 34, in the middle of the verse. Look there. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, so when considering who in the world could possibly condemn believers, Paul reminds us of what Jesus did for us. He 
died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended to a place of honor at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Okay, now, you know, you can preach whole sermons on any one of those things, right? Um, I could preach hours on any one of those things. Okay, but the point I would make in the context here that I think is important is as he's going along, he is uh, reserving the emphasis for the end. You can see that with the emphatic word indeed near the end of the verse. And I think the point that Paul is making is the Jesus that we gather and worship is not just a Jesus who died. And we will worship him today at the Lord's table. But we don't come here just to perform a memorial. We do remember. But the Jesus that we love and serve, the Christ Jesus we love and serve, is risen, ascended, in a powerful position on high, and he is interceding for us now before the throne of grace. If I were to summarize his argument, I think his point is, you know, no one will possibly be able to um, condemn the person for whom Jesus is currently praying to God for. It's like when I'm, I'm, I'm comparing these, a, a person, a force, Satan or demons or whatever, trying to condemn me with the power of the risen Messiah who's praying prayers for me every day. It's like no comparison. Who's to condemn us? No one. That, that leads to Paul's final question and answer, uh, verses 35 through 39, the fourth Q&A. Um, and the question comes in verse 35. It's a bit longer, and there's a little bit more meat here, so I've gone a little bit quickly through the first part, so we can dig in here a little bit. The question's longer, the answer's longer, and there's even something else in there. So verse 35, question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This question Paul asks, if anyone is able to separate or detach us from Christ's love. The word separate is an important one. It is a spatial term that often is used in the Bible to talk about relational separation, separation between two people. Here Paul pictures two objects. What are the objects? Us, believers, Christ's love. And he wonders if something will be able to drive these two apart. That's when he expands the questions. He says, it's a longer question, isn't it? And he, he includes seven disasters that normally separate people from those whom they love. Now, a few things I'll point out about these, these uh, seven things in verse 35 is that they all normally occur in contexts of persecution and suffering. I'll also point out that Paul himself had faced every one of these except one. Which one of them had Paul not faced before? The last one, yeah, I heard it. The sword. What's the sword? The sword refers to violent death, death through execution. It refers to capital punishment. Yet, the sword will prove to be the final obstacle for Paul in the years ahead, before he sees Jesus. 
matter of fact, within 10 years of this, in the city of Rome itself, Paul will die a martyr's death for Christ, beheaded by a sword. Now, he's not the only one, though, that's going to face these things. Like, if you came here today saying, you know, you're wanting a gospel that's it's all going to be rosy and easy and joyful, please, Pastor, please, that's not what the Bible says here. And when we consider the historic situation of the Roman believers themselves, this letter uh, to the book of Romans is written in 57 A.D. Seven years later, opinion in the city of Rome will turn against the Christians. So that um, on July 19th, 64 A.D., a great fire sweeps through the city of Rome. The fire was massive. It lasted seven whole days. It wiped out 10 of the 14 wards of the city. Nero was suspected of, of starting the fire because it was prime real estate for a new palace, but Nero blamed Christians for the fire. And so within seven years of this, uh, the writing of this letter, some of these Christians will be impaled on poles burned on torches, thrown to ravenous dogs, brutally abused, tortured, beheaded, and crucified. So Paul's not saying in verse 35 that these things will never happen to the Roman believers. Now he understands, I think, that Christians will often face severe persecution and affliction. His question is this, whether those things can detach or dislodge us from Christ's love. That's the question. Okay, now before answering it, he gives an explanation in verse 36. He's going to answer that question. Can those things separate us from the love of God? Before he does, he gives a scriptural testimony to the reality of suffering affliction. So in verse 36, as it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, now that comes as a verbatim quote from Psalm 44 and verse 22. I encourage you to write the reference down and look up that psalm this week. Psalm 44, verse 22. For sake of time, again, the psalm that we look at, this psalm is unusual in, in the Psalter in that the authors, who are the sons of Korah, Consider their plight as people of God, but they say that in their particular historical situation, they have not done wrong. Normally you read the Psalms, and the psalmist is like, okay, we failed you, we're not honoring the name of God, we sin, we deserve all this stuff, but please save us anyway. Psalm 44 is different. The sons of Korah say, the people had not forgotten God, nor been false to his covenant. They, they say, our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not departed from your way. Yet for God's sake, the sons say, the people of Israel are being killed all the day long, and they're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, back in the Old Testament context, they're facing continual assault and devastating defeats as a country, it's so bad. The sons of Israel describe the Israelites as having souls bowing down into the dust with bellies clinging to the ground. Very vivid Hebrew. 
The psalm ends this way by calling God to awake, to rouse himself, to rise up, and to come to help them. So why does Paul quote this verse? I think Paul is quoting this verse to to give scriptural proof that what the Romans might experience, these sort of seven things that can really attack these, these, you know, this opposition, these afflictions, it's nothing new. Even believers in the Old Covenant experience these things. As a matter of fact, Jewish rabbis often use this exact same verse to talk about the death of the martyrs. Psalm 44, 22. So Paul quotes this psalm to give scriptural testimony to the reality of suffering and affliction in the life of God's people. But then he gives his answer. Ready for his answer? Verses 37 through 39. Okay, what was the question? Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Ready for the answer? No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, I love that. Paul's answer couldn't be any clearer. He starts out with a bold word, no. Instead of these things separating us from God's love, in in the experience of these trials, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. This translation, more than conquerors, comes from one compound word which could be translated, win a victory over, or we have become overwhelmingly, or overwhelmingly conquer, I should say. In all these things, we win a victory over them. We overwhelmingly conquer because we're the people God has loved. Only those people overwhelmingly conquer. I love the old song. Don't you love the song? Uh, The beginning. Oh, love that will not let me go. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul. In thee. That's what this text is about. God's unbreakable, unfailing love for us that will never let us go. Nothing, no one can dislodge us from it. I can't even mess it up myself. No one. His confidence is so profound in verses 38 and 39. He kind of raises to a powerful crescendo here and he considers ten realities that can't separate us. Some of these are held together. He says, neither death nor life. Uh, that's like all the possibilities there are to the end of our existence in this, right? Nor angels nor rulers. I think here Paul considers whether supernatural or natural rulers would be able to afflict us. You say, say what you really mean. Demons, nor wicked human governmental authorities can detach us, neither one. 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing that we face in time can do it either. Through all the events of our life that we are facing now and that we will face in the future, nothing can rip us away from God's love. He continues, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And with those two, I think he he says, nothing we face in space, existence anywhere. The best way to categorize height and depth is to hold them together and see them either as astronomical terms or spatial terms. And I like spatial a little bit better. I think the point is, neither the highest height, you know, the heights of heaven, or the deepest depths, the words used for the depths of the unfathomable sea, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No place you go, no space can do it. This is the Psalm 139 of the New Testament. You know Psalm 139? Remember a few of those verses? It says, uh, if I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Nor height, nor depth. It doesn't matter where we go. And then he closes. Number 10. Nor anything else in all creation. It's like, I'm going to fill in any gap that might possibly exist here. Anything else in the whole created order. All the powers of death, all the circumstances of life, all of space, all of time, all of reality, none of these things can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. This is how Paul closes with this hymn he composes. I think some of it perhaps intended as poetry in response to the Lord. What, and what amazing difference it is from the end of Romans 7. I remember when I preached the end of Romans 7, some of you were greatly depressed discouraged there paul ends somber and defeated he says uh talks about the laws uh, the law and his members that's always present that brings him into captivity to the law of sin and death remember he says oh wretched man that i am who can deliver me from the body of this death now however having articulated these things about what god has done for us through jesus paul exclaims the glories of god's victorious, relentless, unbreakable love for us. This is Paul's song. And it sustained him throughout all these things. So as we close, let me draw application. When you begin to doubt in the dark, Remember this song, brothers and sisters. Sing it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you face death, or a trial, severe trial, remember, it's an unbreakable love It's like glue, right? That will hold us and help us all the way through life. 
And when your accusers and opponents gather and descend upon you, when your trials and afflictions overwhelm you, remember that through this love, you will overwhelmingly conquer. May we sing in moments like this, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. And may God's love stay you, brothers and sisters, knowing that nothing in this world can detach you from it. Let's pray together.